Welcome to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We look forward to delving into the topics that are shaping clinical care, medical research, medical education, and challenging us to reimagine medicine. Each month, we bring together clinicians, researchers, educators, healthcare thought leaders, and medical students to share the experiences and ideas that are fueling their efforts. In this episode, we will discuss beating the odds, what it takes to have a healthy heart. I'm Dr. Johnny Lifshitz. I'm Dr. Katie Bright. We are faculty members at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Thank you for joining us. Heart disease is the number one killer of both men and women in the U.S. What is being done to change these statistics? And what does it take to have a healthy heart? We've brought together experts who are taking on heart disease, and we are so glad that they're with us. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests and do not represent the opinions of the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, or Banner Health. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, consult your personal family physician for medical care. Joining us today is Dr. Martha Gulati. Dr. Gulati is the Division Chief of Cardiology for the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and Physician Executive Director for the Banner University Medical Heart Institute. Dr. Gulati leads education activities in cardiovascular sciences for medical students, residents, and fellows at the college and Banner Health. She also leads clinical heart care as the Director of the Cardiovascular Institute at Banner. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you. The latest heart disease and stroke statistics for the United States, and I'm sure other countries as well, indicate that we do have a real problem. The statistics are roughly one in two adults over age of 20 have some form of cardiovascular disease. That personally scares me because between Katie and myself, one of two uh, could have heart disease. Uh, Can you elaborate on these numbers and their implications for our thought about maintaining health? Yeah, what it means is right now in the United States, like you said, the look at the person next to you and hope it's them, but otherwise it's you who already has heart disease. And so it is a very serious issue. The reason the numbers look a little bit worse than they probably did even the year before is because we have um, redefined hypertension. So we've lowered our threshold for where we make a diagnosis of hypertension. And as a result, more people in the United States have some form of cardiovascular disease. The problem is, is that, you know, um, most people don't recognize that they have cardiovascular disease until it's too late. I mean, or even know that they're at risk for it until it's too late. So usually as a cardiovascular I'm meeting them in the emergency room when they're having a heart attack, and they were completely unaware that anything was wrong and that they were even at risk for a disease that's incredibly common. Interesting. Always disconcerting to hear the statistics. um, Clearly, you're very passionate about women's heart health, and this is where you focused your research. Can you tell us what makes you so passionate and why you're so passionate about it, and also about what research is showing us about women's um, heart health and maybe how women are treated currently in the healthcare landscape? Sure. So I think, you know, again, heart disease is so common. And for women, heart disease remains the number one killer. And what shocked me even when I was a medical student and still continues to shock me is how little we still know about women's hearts and also how little the public understands their own risk. So when we ask women if they know that they're at risk for heart disease or, you know, if they have even ever had their heart screened, most women will say no. They were much more about their breasts 
than they do their heart. And it, it's sort of something that I say, you know, it, it covers the heart. And the thing that you can see is something sometimes more easy to understand that that might be a health issue. Um, and we've talked about women's health specifically as if it, you know, the way we focus on it, even as physicians, with a bikini-like approach. So when we see centers for women's health, um, when we talk about women's health, we're always checking, did you have your pap smear? Did you have your mammogram? We don't always ask about other organs. And it's not unique to heart disease, but since heart disease is so prevalent, that's part of the issue. And, And what that has done in our society in general and in the medical community is left out 50% of the population. We also decided to ignore women in terms of research. We wouldn't include them because they had that pesky problem of getting pregnant. We wouldn't include them because, you know, hormones might affect our research. So we didn't want that to mess up research. So for so many reasons, we excluded women from trials. And therefore, here we are in 2019, and we still, there's so many unanswered questions about women. And you still see pervasive research coming out where, you know, we're doing better, but there is still studies. I just read a study last night, you know, 38% women enrolled. We can do better than that. We should do better. We often have studies that don't even report by sex. So if you have men and women, why not report? the difference in how a drug might have affected women versus affected men. Bleeding risks, for example, now that we actually look at it, we know some of the drugs we use in cardiology that do save lives, but sometimes cause more bleeding in women. Is it the right dose for women? Should we be dosing based on weight or is there something about women that need a different dose of the drug? And these, you know, it's, we know that genetically we're different. And so it's not the, you know, the idea that women are just small men, and that's what we really need to move away from. I think the other part of your question was just even how we treat women and, and you know, the way that for years we've known this, and this is probably why I went into this field, is that when a woman comes into an emergency room, if she's having a heart attack, we are less likely to treat women as aggressively as we would men. And that is a very real bias that exists in medicine and it's gotten better over time but it still persists and I think when I was a medical student I realized um, you know that this was I would see it in the emergency room that there was a difference when a woman talked about the elephant sitting on her chest versus the man who talked about the elephant on their chest there would be different questions asked and how we listen to people, how we even ask questions to people is sometimes different based on the sex and sometimes based on the race of the person. And it really shocked me that we treat people differently. And especially for me, I have a very strong family history of heart disease in women in my family. And I and knowing that all this was going, you know, not either not taking place, like research wasn't taking place in women, and the way we cared for women wasn't equal, it made me know where I needed to be. And it made me actually decide this was my career. And I feel very fortunate to not just be a cardiologist, but to focus my efforts on women and cardiovascular disease and prevention. And I actually only see women patients as a result of that. 
I'm absolutely engrossed listening to you about this because you're outlining not only a, a career's worth or more of research initiatives as well as priorities that need to be made. Part of the work that I do is in children and the same issues that you brought up for women apply to children. They're not just little adults. They have different pharmacology and what have you. Uh, many of the points that you touched on we're going to approach with Dean Reed in the next segment about personalized medicine and how can we treat that better. So thank you for introducing those topics. You also touched on an element of stigma. There's so much stigma about who should be enrolled or a particular bias, and there could be stigma about healthcare versus medical care or heart failure versus one of your terms, heart success. And so what have you noticed in dealing with your patients, particularly the women, if you reverse the narrative from heart failure to heart success, are you getting uh, the light bulbs to go off and people to understand that there's uh, an opportunity there to improve their health and well-being? Well, I'll tell you the whole thing about heart failure. This is a recent um, thing for me, so I, I can't tell you entirely maybe a whole narrative around it, but I had a patient who came in with what we call heart failure, and I told her she needed to not just see me, but also needed to see a heart failure specialist in our clinic and explain to her why. And she listened to the whole thing, um, what is heart failure, why I needed her to see. And I must have said heart failure like 20 times. And she looked at me and she said, heart failure is such a bad word. And she told me right then and there, I'm not going to go to that doctor. And I said, no, no, no. And I, I thought I convinced her by the end. I was like, no, you need him. We're just going to get his opinion. We're not. And I, I even agreed with her. I said, I hate the word heart failure because it is so negative. The connotation is so negative. And you know, she did not go to the doctor. She did not go to the colleague I referred her to. And um, it made me think about this. And I started some conversation, but there was someone else who initiated this conversation on Twitter. They were specifically asking what, you know, what does that mean? I don't know why they asked that question, but it, for me, I answered back on Twitter saying, you know, we need to think of a new term. Why are we talking in terms of failure? I mean, there's there's got to be a better term. Heart success may not even be the right term, but I think that we have to think of words that make, don't scare patients and also give them hope. Heart our failure means give up all hope because we're done here. And that should not be, you know, if I had an illness, I, I would hope that there's hope for me. And I would hope that there is something that you can do to make me better. And I think the word failure means like to patients, it must mean that we've, you know, that's all we can do. We're done here. Um, and that is, you know, why should I even go see that doctor? And I get it. And I, I've actually thought about this patient a lot, but I think words matter. That, that's what we realize when we're taking care of patients. I mean, you, you are um, their voice. You are, their, you are the person who they're looking for, for what can you do to make me better. But these, these words that we use, you know, I hate even the word widow maker. I mean, first of all, that really, you know, what about women who have the same obstruction? And what does it mean now? Because now we're so good at treating, when we see blockages as cardiologists, we can go in there and open up that artery and, and get the blood flowing again. And hopefully we're not making many widows or widowers the way that we have improved the statistics. But when you say that, oh, you had a widow maker, you know, I, maybe it makes a cardiologist feel good. Like I saved you, but it, it doesn't actually do much for the, the person who it's affected. 
Those are all excellent points. Um, recently, the 11th annual Red Dress Cocktail Party was hosted here on campus, and um, I think we raised, were, what, 21000 or even more was raised. Can you tell us a little more about that event, what it means for women's health heart research? Yeah, so we have a really wonderful group of women here in the community of Phoenix who have started, you know, who started this fashion show or this Red Dress Cocktail Party, if you will, and it's it's really exploded to be busy. Bigger every year, which has been fantastic. And it's involved our community, actually. So it's in the setting of our medical school here in a very beautiful setting, but it's brought the community together and really been a way to, ed- in a fun way, to educate women about risk of heart disease and that we can prevent heart disease. We target people of all races, so we all get together on probably a, a commonality of, uh, I would say, joy, fashion, and uh, um, some nice wine. Um, So between all of that, I think we've been able to get people to understand their risk and understand that heart disease is preventable. And it was actually started by a young woman named Maria Benson, and it really in the memory of her mother, because she did lose her mother at quite a young age, and she's wanted to figure out how she could educate our community to understand the risk for heart disease. And um, I think we've been really successful. So we did raise, I think, $21,000, and we're hoping to use those funds to actually train the next generation of doctors. Doctors. By that, I mean really going into the community and trying to get kids at the, actually women, children, like girls, I guess, um, at the uh, younger ages in high school to be interested in healthcare professions and be able to open the door to them to what do we do in cardiology? Because cardiology specifically, we're only 13% women in cardiology um, across this nation, and it hasn't budged in more than 10 years, that number. Now there's more urologists in the country than cardiologists, and we're trying to figure out why. And we also want to bring these young women back to their community. Our hope is is that they will be able to go back and serve their community and be welcome in their community and and also help us prevent heart disease or treat heart disease in their own community members. Whether they become physicians, whether they become nurses, whether they become uh, dietitians, all the fields of, you know, technicians, whatever, we want to show them all the wonderful things in cardiology that they could do and hopefully open a door for them. So that's where we're going to be using that money is basically we're going to be, I think we're going to be calling it cardiology camp. I love it. Yeah, with all those great anecdotes about research and uh, clinical care, education, community involvement, uh, knowing that you're at the helm of cardiology in Phoenix is going to position us quite nicely and, and recruit a variety of healthcare specialists to make sure that we're healthy enough not to need uh, heart failure specialists, which exactly. is probably the best way to do it. Dr. Gulati, thank you so much for sharing all of your thoughts and just being here with us today. You've really helped us to change our thoughts and reconsider, I think, how we approach heart disease, especially women's health disease as physicians, researchers, and as patients. We're going to take a little break. We'll be back with some other um, guests focused on heart disease. And thank you again so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Johnny Lifshitz serves as the director of the Translational Neurotrauma Research Program, which is a joint venture through Barrow Neurological Institute at Phoenix Children's Hospital, the Department of Child Health at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and the Phoenix Veterans Affair Healthcare System. 
Dr. Katie Bright is the chair of the Curriculum Committee and co-director of the Family, Community, and Preventative Medicine Clerkship at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, placing students with community clinical partners all across the state. She is a family physician and the vice president of primary care services at Bayless Integrated Healthcare. Welcome back to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We're pleased to have Dean Guy Reed join our conversation. Dean Reed is a noted cardiologist, physician scientist, and health administrator. He's also the dean of our College of Medicine, Phoenix. He's internationally known for his research on mechanisms of blood clots and vascular disease. His research findings have been translated into innovative clot-dissolving therapies to treat patients with stroke and heart attacks. That therapy is now in clinical trials. This episode is focused on beating the odds to achieve a healthy heart. We know that heart disease is still the number one killer in the U.S. Can you tell us what progress we've made in heart disease research and where we're headed from here? Uh, Thanks, Katie. Um, You know, one of the interesting things about heart disease is there has been enormous progress in the last uh, 40 to 50 years. Um, uh, As a result of uh, progress in in research and uh, uh, prevention, uh, the mortality rate from heart disease has dropped significantly by about 75%. Incredible, incredible progress. Progress in heart disease has led to a prolongation of, of the lifespan, the average American lifespan, by about seven years. Um, and it has really uh, been an area of pride uh, for the scientific community as well as the educational community. Um, the challenge going forward is that it's projected by 2030 that about 40% of Americans will have cardiovascular disease. And the costs of cardiovascular care will rise to about $1.1 trillion per year. So a lot of progress, but an enormous challenge going forward. I'm sure part of that extending the lifespan for seven years means that people have seven more years for heart disease to start or yes. to claim some yes. sort of uh, yeah. issue as yes. well. Um, I'm so grateful that you mentioned that this uh, research and preventive care has been the the leading force because I do research and Katie does preventive care, uh, which is a focus of health care over medical care. But specifically, the research that you've done, uh, the one where you want to break open clots or break through uh, clots in order to improve outcomes from vascular disease, can you tell us about uh, quickly how you targeted a specific mechanism and then were able to see these initial successes? So it's it's an interesting uh, perversion of uh, nature that a, a mechanism that has kept us alive for so long, our ability to uh, clot our blood in response to injuries and everything else, has, when you develop vascular disease, actually been the cause of death. So we, over many, many thousands of years, have learned to develop uh, very secure, uh, very robust blood clots, and we have a very slow mechanism for dissolving those blood clots to facilitate healing. We uh, looked at several mechanisms that cause blood clots to dissolve, and we found a way to spontaneously accelerate that process by uh, addressing a specific molecular mechanism called alpha-2 antiplasmin. We think that this uh, mechanism and, and attacking this mechanism will enable us to safely treat heart attacks, strokes, and other causes of vascular disease. It's interesting to be able to have a time turner, so to speak, either accelerate or slow down exactly, that specific right. yeah, yeah. time-related element to uh, not accelerate disease, but to accelerate mm-hmm. the processes of recovery from disease. 
It's it's almost like that crystal ball, which kind of brings me to the next um, question, which is precision medicine is sort of a buzzword, yeah. and I know it's something you're passionate about. Yes. Can you just talk to us a little bit about how precision medicine um, affects the heart health landscape and just maybe sure. how we prevent and treat sure. patients? Yeah, I think one of the real excitement about precision medicine is there are so many diseases uh, and, and so many illnesses that we encounter that we don't know the actual cause of, the molecular cause of, the genetic cause of. And because we don't know those causes, we can't design uh, molecular treatments that really uh, form the basis for new therapeutics. So the promise of uh, precision medicine, of programs like the All of Us Research Program, are really to help us get some insights uh, into what might be the causes and to develop new therapies. Uh, one of the challenges in, in cardiovascular disease is a, uh, is a problem called heart failure. Even though we've reduced the uh, acute death rate from myocardial infarction, what happens is that patients suffer uh, from uh, diseased hearts for a longer period of time and develop heart failure, and there is really no targeted molecular treatment. By doing precision medicine, understanding what each individual's particular genetic uh, uh, sweet spot might be for therapy, I think we can improve therapy, reduce mortality, reduce morbidity. So that's the promise, yeah. Well, based on that promise, I want to push the limits a little bit. Um, I could say that precision medicine is being a cardiologist as opposed to being a general practitioner and that you're being more precise in either your diagnosis or your treatment. So how far do you, how far can you take precision medicine before you're uh, at the elements and, or how, and using simply cardiology as a, as a example for that discussion? Yes, yeah, so that's, that's a great question. So uh, for one of, one of the challenges in, in uh, heart failure is that we don't know who is at risk of developing a genetic uh, cause of, of cardiomyopathy of heart failure. If we could identify those individuals early, we could push treatment and prevention early. We could alter their behavior uh, so that we could reduce perhaps the, the progression, the inexorable progression of weakness of their heart and, and, and death. So I think it has tremendous potential there. So once again, we're talking about time. As long as time. we can get time. it earlier, sooner, better, faster, we, we would be uh, uh, better equipped to improve the health and well-being of Arizonans and, and our country's citizens. Exactly. And certainly focusing our funding and attention on those things that, if you catch early, can make a difference long-term yes. and, yes. and prevent mortality and, yes. and chronic illness. So that's great. Teen Read Technology, it's advancing at a staggering rate. Um, can you just talk to the listeners a little bit about how the U of University of Arizona College of Medicine Phoenix is preparing our future doctors for this highly advanced technological state that they're graduating into? So there are many, many ways that we, we try to do that, but I'll give a, a concrete example. Um, everyone is focused on the enormous richness of data that we collect on, on patients, on behavior, and everything else, but we don't use that richness of data to actually predict outcomes or predict patients at risk or to forecast uh, um, uh, uh, potential uh, illness. Um, the college a long time ago made an investment in an area called biomedical informatics, um, 
which is designed to treat, or not to treat, but to educate our students about how to use data in a predictive way uh, so that we can improve outcomes for patients. Um, that's been a real focus. And uh, some leaders here at the college were also, uh, Howie Silverman, other people like that, were also instrumental in establishing uh, clinical informatics as a clinical discipline to train physicians about how to use the richness of clinical medical records and other things like that to prevent errors, uh, to uh, identify patients at risk, to change our behavior and improve our therapeutics. So that has enormous uh, future for our students. So that's, that's great because the idea is that there's more information out there. There's a richness of data yes. that will help us improve what we're doing. So. I want to take that point and transition. We have our medical students here. Our medical students need to be able to evaluate medicine in a different way. It's not just listening with a stethoscope or otoscope. It's now a whole EMR, uh, electronic medical records, as well as the data. Do you see those students working on that themselves, or do they need to partner with specific new brand of healthcare providers, these informaticians, and then the same way that those students would partner with those informaticians, how does the college partner with uh, other entities to bring that to reality? Yeah, so the concept of the physician as kind of the lone ranger uh, in, in delivery of healthcare, I think, has gone away largely. Uh, we realize that by partnering and working in interdisciplinary teams in an interprofessional way, that we can be better at delivering good outcomes for patients. Um, I think the college is really um, has focused in, in the last few years at uh, delivering a personalized, innovative medical education. We've realized that the core elements of medical education may be accomplished in three years. And we're moving towards that. And as we think about those core elements, we also want our students to be prepared for the ability to have unique expertise and training in all of these different kind of disciplines where they may rise to become leaders that have tremendous value to our community. Um, So, for instance, someone may decide that they want to um, uh, go into rural health. Um, They may uh, focus on the, um, special uh, training in that area and delivery of health care, um, uh, special challenges of, of social determinants of health, other things like that. That may be a, a special area or expertise that they may have. Uh, they may also want to go uh, into clinical informatics um, and develop um, a, a special expertise there. But we recognize that our students as physicians will always be better when they work together mm-hmm. with other partners in delivering health value. So with that, as you're talking, I'm thinking about our audience. And some of the people in our audience are future applicants to our College of Medicine. And many of them are cramming for the MCAT, which is primarily uh, an English component, a biology component, and a physical science component. Should there be an informatics component or should there be an interpersonal component in order to better segregate or better identify people who are ready for accepting the technology required to be a physician that's not a Lone Ranger. The MCATs are an important tool uh, that we 
kind of used to understand how people can assimilate large amounts of information and use it to arrive at conclusions. And it is a recognition of the fact that our profession is continuously tested throughout uh, its uh, development. So uh, people are tested not only to get into medical school, but repeatedly tested in medical school, and then in residency, then in fellowship, and then after they leave. So that's, that's a reality. That's part of a social compact. It's one way that we demonstrate that people are capable of doing things. But we don't select students based on MCATs. We select uh, students based on their commitment, their passion uh, for medicine, their desire to serve and make things better. And we select them through intensive interviews from multiple different kinds of people who, from the community, from our faculty, who really have some insight into what it takes. Dean Reed, it has been such an honor to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And I feel like we've just learned a lot about your your passions, your particular areas of interest and research, but also thank you for showcasing some of the brightest parts of our curriculum. Thank you, Kitty. And thank you, Johnny. It was really great. Thank you. Now we're continuing our conversation on Reimagine Medicine podcast with Tabin Hale. Tabin is a specialist in cardiovascular pharmacology and an associate professor in basic medical sciences here at the College of Medicine, Phoenix. She leads a nationally recognized research program investigating the consequences of high blood pressure on the structure and function of the heart. The goal of her work is to develop new drug treatments to prevent progression of heart failure. Dr. Hale teaches pharmacology to first and second year medical students. Welcome, Tabin. Happy to be here. Thank you for being here, Tabin. So I wanted to kind of just go across the gamut a little bit. So we know hypertension is a risk for heart disease, but thanks to medical advancements, many people survive heart attacks now. Unfortunately, they're at risk for other long-term consequences such as heart failure. Uh, Your research with fibroblasts seeks to reduce the risk of heart failure in patients with high blood pressure. Can you explain this to to us and to our listeners? Yeah, sure. um, You're right. There's been incredible advancements that have allowed people to survive um, longer with heart disease. And unfortunately, as a consequence, that means we have more people living with heart failure. And so what happens in the heart is we get this uh, progressive remodeling and, and increased deposition of fibrotic tissues so collagen and um, other extracellular matrix components. And that impairs the ability of the heart to relax and contract. And so over time, the heart is unable to pump enough blood to meet the demands of the tissues. And the cells that are primarily responsible for that collagen deposition are the fibroblasts. And so these are cells that are really interesting to me and I think um, open up a novel target for therapy. Right now we don't have any uh, treatments that can reverse the fibrotic remodeling. Some drugs are able to potentially slow it, but we can't, we can't really stop this course. And so we're really interested in, in finding, learning more about the fibroblasts and see if we can target them to prevent this pr- progression. We just spoke with Dr. Reed about precision medicine, and you're talking about fibroblasts in the heart, but there's fibroblasts in other places in the, in the body as well. What do you, how do you approach the thought process of trying to either accelerate or slow down the process of fibroblast activity in the heart without necessarily negatively impacting other parts of the body? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, 
And I guess right now I'm not focusing solely on the heart, um, although those are the that's the tissue I'm looking at. But some of actually some of the treatments we're using, we we although we're focused on the heart, we see beneficial effects and reduction in fibrosis in the kidney as well. But we can only. Um, figure out the mechanisms uh, one organ at a time. So we're, we're focused on the heart right now, but we're collecting kidneys as well, and we think we're probably going to see beneficial effects there as yeah, well. Yeah, that goes back to our, um, our kids who ask, hey, how does the Tylenol or how does the Advil know to go to my toe or my ankle or my elbow? These are real questions that uh, define precision medicine in an interesting way. So uh, I have a question. We know that there's genetic component as well as lifestyle risk factors for heart disease. Can you just give us some ideas of ways that maybe you can beat the odds and have a healthier heart? Yeah, that's a really good question. There are some things we can um, modify, but right now we can't modify our family history and our genetic makeup. Um, you know, my I had a pharmacology professor who would say, you need to do all the things your mom told you to do. You need to eat right. You need yes. to exercise um, and control if you have diabetes, control your blood pressure, or sorry, blood sugar. If you have high blood pressure, you need to take your medicine to control it, limit sodium intake. So all of those um, all of those things are, are going to be beneficial and help um, prevent your uh, cardiovascular disease risk or limit your cardiovascular disease risk, quit smoking. You know, I think the biggest thing that we can do is be active. Yeah, and it goes back to the same take-home messages that we keep hearing, which is uh, we should really be in the business of health care, not medical care. You don't want to treat the medical issue. You want to you want to promote health and well-being amongst people. Uh, Katie and I talk about it all the time, the preventive medicine as opposed to the um, emergency medicine that is often required when people ignore what mom or dad or uncles or aunts say uh, that we should be doing. Um, that being said, it's how do you get people to listen? And in particular, I want to know your thoughts on how you get fellows, postdoctoral fellows or clinical fellows, how you get graduate students, high school students to listen maybe to their own research before they listen to their own heart. What's your, uh, tell us about your passion for promoting their uh, involvement in, in academics and pursuing work for the greater, greater good. That's an easier question to answer than how would I motivate them to be active, <laughs> because I can't lead by example there, but I can lead by example in the lab. Um, yeah, that's actually uh, a real passion of mine is um, getting young students really interested in science. And I think the earlier we can do that, the better. Um, we have a, the um, Basic Medical Sciences has a summer internship program, and we have high school students who come in, and they learn how to do hypothesis-based research, and it's a hands-on experience. Um, some of the benefits of this, we may be getting them excited and potentially a career in research. Um, but I think even beyond that, if we can start teaching students how to think critically and how to analyze data and how to ask questions, how to design experiments around that, um, even if they don't pursue a career in science, those are really important skills to have in life. Uh, there's so much information available to us. So I think teaching um, people how to critically assess information is important. 
I also know that you're part of an initiative here on campus, the Women in Medicine and Science, which is helping to bring traditionally marginalized communities, or at least one of those marginalized communities, to the table up front and, and center. We heard from Dr. Gulati about how she has a clinic that only treats or examines women in regards to heart disease and really um, pulling back that curtain. I want to give you an opportunity to speak about women in medicine and science and how that serves as a role model for other investigators as well as for younger future generations of physicians and scientists. Yeah, thank you. It's um, another thing that I'm, I'm really excited about. You know, I think... Um, Seeing, seeing people in, in the, that are like you in the careers you'd like to have is really important. When I think about graduate school, I didn't have any female faculty members in my department. We eventually had one assistant professor as I was leaving. And, you know, there were, there were, that was impactful, um, starting to see women faculty. And not that I ever thought, I can't do this, but it's meaningful to see people who look like you. Tabin, it's been a pleasure having you here as part of our conversation. We look forward to seeing all your research results and future successes in grant writing, and uh, as well as meeting your students as they come through. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Johnny, I always look forward to just debriefing and discussing uh, after our guests have left us on some of the key points. I think possibly the most staggering thing for us to think about and just remember is that, that heart disease is still the number one killer in the U.S., Unquestionably, we heard and we know that it's one in two. Uh, Dr. Gulati told us we hope it's not them, or we hope it is them, and I hope it's not me because it is one of the people sitting next to you. If you're driving mm -hmm. in your car right now mm -hmm. and with a passenger, it's one of you too, and it's uh, not a good feeling. Uh, what we do know, though, is uh, we need more than hope. And we heard from Dean Reed, we heard from Dr. Gulati, we heard from Dr. Hale that they're all involved in research in ways of understanding the mechanisms that are associated with heart disease. And if we can understand those mechanisms, we can get more precise treatments. If we get more precise treatments, we can better tailor those treatments to each individual. Uh, it's absolutely critical to know not only the patient and the disease, but what is the intersection and where we can treat them. What I learned was this concept of it's not just you have a bad heart, so to speak. You have heart disease, and if you recover from heart disease, it can lead into heart failure. So it's a whole new disease as it evolves over time. Yeah, I really liked focusing on that a little bit too. And even though our technology has come a long way and we're surviving heart attacks at much greater rates, uh, that, that heart failure risk looming in the distance for so many of our patients is definitely daunting. I did like very much, though, how Dr. Gulati sort of focused on that and mentioned um, really even calling it a heart failure. Our verbiage as providers and healthcare, um, those of us delivering healthcare is so important. So using the term instead of a heart failure, heart hope or heart success for patients is just an awesome um, Pearl. Right. Maybe there is something in that idea of a trophy generation that every year your heart's good, you get a new trophy, and for participating and having a healthy heart could work out really nicely. Right. Uh, that being said, there are some modifiable factors that we can do. Preventive health is is such an important aspect to making sure that we make it into each year and each decade healthier than the last, or at least as healthy as possible. You're speaking my language now, Johnny, with the preventive medicine. You know, being proactive and preventive. Keeping people from getting sick in the first place is such a huge focus in primary care, but across healthcare. And, you know, 
I feel like that um, this has been a theme kind of throughout many of our podcasts, but I love the focus on that with our with our guest today. And that whole idea of preventive health or preventive medicine in order to improve health relies on having a good role model. What we know is that if you've got a good role model or a good team around you, it will work to achieve the goals that you want. And we heard from Dr. Hale about the effort she's making in terms of creating opportunities for all high school students and particularly young uh, females in Mm -hmm. STEM-related fields to be able to be the role model that she never had in order to be able to set up our college to get rid of that 13%, if I remember the number correctly, of cardiologists Mm -hmm. across the United States. So that idea of training women into uh, into the confidence that they need and the opportunities that are available for them to do whatever they want to do so everybody can help be part of that uh, the healthcare delivery team. I also like how she mentioned if we all did everything that our mother said, we would have the best dose of prevention. <laughs> Unquestionably, unquestionably. And I don't know about you, but my mother said, go do whatever it is that makes you happy, whatever you're good at. And so there's so many opportunities for everybody, all minorities or marginalized individuals to come to the center, to be leaders, to be role models, so that we don't have to have this conversation in 10 years about why is there a distribution of the demographics in in the uh, academics or any other uh, field. You know, we do folk tend to focus in, in primary care and I think just in general on, as Dr. Gulati put it, on women's bikini zone. So I, I love just empowering our listeners or anyone who, who might be kind of focused a lot. We love to focus on breasts and pelvic exams, but not forgetting the other organs coming forth if you have symptoms or just want to talk about that with your provider, I think was a great um, thing for us to focus on this episode as well. To use your word, coming forth, being an advocate for yourself, being able to be educated in health care and health medicine and be able to have uh, an authentic conversation with your health care provider so that you can be healthy and you can beat the odds and, uh, and have a healthy life that you envision for yourself. Dean Reed really drew some attention to some of the pretty cool things that we're doing here as far as technology and preparing our students uh, for the future. He mentioned the biomedical informatics, Mm -hmm. which is a theme across the four years. One thing I was thinking about, too, is we also have something called an EBM or an evidence-based medicine theme across the four years. So as we get inundated with so much research, it's nice to know that we're kind of equipping our students with what they need to kind of tease through that even at the bedside and find the most evidence-based and what's pertinent um, for the patient at that time. Yeah, Dr. Hale mentioned that as well in terms of bringing in those high school students to teach Mm -hmm. them hypothesis-driven science, to be critical thinkers, to be able to grasp as much information out there, to uh, be knowledgeable, to be precise in their description and their treatments of health and human disease. Katie, as always, I mean, we could go on forever. That's true. I'd love to extend this conversation, this important discussion, but you know what? Our time is up for today. Lift shits out like a well-functioning GI system. Bright out like a good night's sleep. The Reimagined Medicine Podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Join us again as we highlight aspects of clinical care, education, and research in an ongoing endeavor to reimagine medicine. Our podcast team is Dr. Katie Bright, Dr. Johnny Lifshitz, Beth Smith, and the media production team at the UA College of Medicine, Phoenix. Our theme song, Dungeon of Return Days, was written and recorded by Midair Machine. The song is accessible on freemusicarchive.org and used under the CCBYSA 4.0 license.